Hello, good evening, good day, everybody. I hope you are all doing very well, and welcome to the newest episode, the eighty-third episode, eighty-third live episode of Ask Abhijit. Uh, so let's see who all is there. Let me greet everybody. I can see Ramesh, Shankarjit, Sourajit, Cherry, Pakta, Devi, Gurav, Ayan, Virk Media. Vampire, Sheikh Rashid, Anurag, Sayan Roy, Harshit 2.0, Komal, Legend, Anurag, Kiran, Chitra, Chiching, Shaurya, Kai the Persian, Brothers, Don Jitega, <laughs> Fire Gamer, Prakhar Sharma, Anshika, Abhishek, and everybody else. Good evening and good day to all of you. I hope you're doing very well. So before we begin, before we go into the uh, Q&A, uh, let me just, uh, I hope you're all enjoying the the podcasts that I'm putting up, the conversations that I'm putting up on the channel. Uh, I hope you're all getting some value from it and it's going to keep on coming. And uh, if you're wondering, in case you're wondering who uh, who I'm going to invite next, well, I would say prepare to be surprised. Because I'm gonna go, I'm gonna call people that you may not really expect, or maybe you may not even know. But I'm gonna call people who are interesting and who have something interesting to, some interesting perspectives, knowledge, etc., to share. So it's gonna keep on coming, at least two podcasts per week, right? So with that said, let us uh, get into the Q and A for today. Uh, the first question for today is by Arjun. So Arjun says, "We at Tamil Nadu are." taught we are taught wow we are taught that tamil nadu was part of a continent called kumari kandam a huge landmass that's now submerged most of our tamil scriptures allege the same i would like to i would love to know your take about this okay so see what is my take about this see i am not an expert in tamil history uh, i am aware of the fact that there are these claims that there was this uh, landmass called Kumari Kandam that is now submerged. There is a story. Now the question is how large was this landmass, etc. But it said that it was a huge continent. It went all the way, God knows where. So my perspective is purely scientific. If there is a claim, there should be evidence for it. So if some landmass has been submerged over time for whatever reason, uh, geological reasons, tectonic reasons, whatever, seismic reasons, then there will be evidence of that under the sea. Clearly, that should be. For instance, we say that there was Dwarka, the city of Dwarka. Well, we have found it under the sea. That's why I say it exists, right? Because we have found actual evidence of it, physical evidence. So now this landmass that they claim uh, exists, there should be some evidence of that. So let's take a look at um, at a map of the uh, Indian Ocean, the undersea uh, region part of the Indian Ocean. Let me remove this and let me share the map. Okay, look into this. So this here is the map of the ocean floor. And if you look here, this here is the Indian subcontinent. This is Africa. Here we have Madagascar. And you can actually see the lines left by the shapes left by, by the uh, movement of the Indian subcontinent continent from Africa all the way into the Eurasian landmass. Now, if we expand this, uh, you can see the continental shelf 
which you can see is much higher than the ocean floor. You can see undersea mountains and so on. You can see where the Maldives are, the Lakshadweep islands are and so on. These are actually the tops of undersea mountains and so on. So this here is Tamil Nadu. Now show me, is there any submerged landmass, continent-sized or even island-sized landmass, whether on the eastern coast of the Indian subcontinent or the western coast of the Indian subcontinent? We don't see any of that. So from the evidence, from the hard geological evidence, from the evidence of what is under the sea, uh, under the surface of the ocean, we see that there is no such submerged landmass. And all of these processes, these geological processes, etc., they occur over millions of years, which far predates human history. So if something was there in the past two, three thousand years, five thousand years, it would certainly be visible here. And unfortunately, no such landmass is visible. And therefore, I have to say that uh, either the, the 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 claim that is made in whatever literature exists, maybe it was about some small landmass but that has been uh, over time exaggerated into a continent size something, or either it simply did not exist. That's all I can say. I have just shown you the geological evidence, the evidence of what lies under the surface of the ocean. So clearly there is no such, no such thing, right? So that is just not, that's not my opinion. It's just facts. It's just what lies under the ocean. It's very clear, right? So that is, that's just what it is. Okay, next question. Was chess invented in India? That's uh, what Rohan asks. So uh, was so yes, obviously uh, uh, we have to once again look at evidence. So let us look for evidence of uh, ancient Indian chess. Uh, let me share that with you. Uh, one second. So let us simply look for. Uh, let's uh, do a Google search for Indus Valley chess, because they call it the Indus Valley region, right? So if you look here, you will find all of this evidence of chess boards chess pieces from mohenjo-daro this here is uh, this this chess board and these chess pieces i think they are presently in present day pakistan and you can see that you you clearly have a great game with the checkered board checkered pattern and various pieces which exactly resembles chess so clearly this is ancient chess that was played in ancient india and so that it, that's what it is. This must be at least 5,000 years old or something. So this is undeniable evidence of the fact that chess was invented in ancient India. I don't know what Wikipedia, etc. say. I don't know what claims they make. But chess is an Indian game. And it's not just chess. It's, it's various other games as well. Various other board games. Uh, Snakes and Ladders also is a game that was invented in India. Uh, even the game of Polo originates in India, in Manipur. Uh, the world's oldest polo ground still exists. It is still functional. It's in the city of Imphal, Manipur. So all of these ancient games, as you, as you can see, are Indian games. And you can see there were horse uh, figurines, etc. and so on. So to answer, to summarize, yes, chess was indeed invented in India. And it spread to other, other cultures, other civilizations, other countries, nations, etc. from India. Uh, so most likely, I think chess spread to the Western world from Persia. So it came to Persia from India. And from Persia, it went 
westwards and to other places. Even the Chinese, uh, I think they acquired this game via their contacts with India. All right. Uh, Saurabh says, why do many historians refer to the Rig Vedic people peoples as tribal populations rather than a clan, clan rather, rather than clans or civilized societies because these are these uh, the original historians who spoke about the rig vedic tribes were europeans they were british and from their perspective everything that is not european is backward and all that and that's why they called the rig vedic uh, clans as tribes so what is the definition of a tribe i've spoken about this before let me speak again a tribe is a small, isolated group of people who have not developed a, an advanced society. So it's a, a, a group of people, a small society, maybe 100 people, maybe 500, maybe 1,000, 2,000 people or something like that. Small, reasonably small group of people who have been isolated for quite some time, who are not in contact with other cultures, with the other groups of individuals, other societies, etc., who are not in touch with them, who are isolated, and whose culture, whose uh, way of life is not very advanced. That is the definition of a tribe, right? So one of the hallmarks of a tribe is that it doesn't have an advanced culture. And it's nowhere near the status of, of a civilization. Now, when it comes to the Rig Vedic peoples, they had a very highly advanced culture. They were a civilization, a proper civilization, not just a small culture. They had incredible literature. They had their own histories of what came a long, a long time before them as well, the Puranas and all that. They, they had records of, of the past and so on. So they were a very highly advanced society. They were a civilization. And these so-called tribal groups, what are alleged to be tribal groups, are actually clans, extended families, extended families, uh, extended lineages. So that's what the Rig Vedic people were. They were, they were clans. They were uh, groups of uh, extended families. Right, So that's what they were. And the problem is that today's historians, the 20th century historians and even the 21st century historians, they blindly, slavishly copy the language that was introduced by the British colonial writers. And that's why you see even today in the PhD thesis and whatever literature comes out in the academic domain, they still refer to the Rig Vedic peoples as tribal groups. It's just blind adherence to uh, colonial tradition. And that tells you this. That tells you about the state of Indian academia. It's it's uh, it's abysmal, unfortunately. So that, in short, is why this notion still persists, and this nomenclature is still continuing today. Uh, Dungar Singh Chauhan says, "Why is Russia so much inclined towards China? Can we see a second Cold War in the coming future, considering the tension between Russia and NATO?" The Second Cold War is already here. We are in the middle of the Second Cold War, right? So why is Russia inclined towards China? See, first of all, uh, the West is very much anti-Russia. They see Russia as a big threat because Russia, even though it has a small economy, it is not even in the top 10 economies in the world, but still, and yet, it has a very powerful military, a really powerful military that can actually uh, pose a significant clear and present threat to Europe, to NATO. And Russia also has the world's largest nuclear arsenal. Right? So Russia is a very significant 
military power, one of the top three military powers in the world for sure. So that's why the West, essentially, when when we talk about the West, when we talk about NATO, we're talking about the US. The US is the only superpower in the world right now. China is not a superpower, all right? China is an aspiring superpower. They want to become a superpower. So the US is the only superpower in the world, and they see any other large power, any other big power as a threat. They don't want to have any other big powers in the world. And therefore, they are so much anti-Russia. They have essentially encircled Russia via NATO, etc. And they are constantly threatening Russia and uh, uh, taking various actions to undermine the the long-term national interest of Russia. And therefore, Russia, and, and the same thing goes, goes with China. China is an emerging power. It is an aspiring superpower. The Americans feel greatly threatened with good reason by China. And therefore, it is natural for these two countries who are both uh, opposing the US, who are both being actively opposed by the U.S. It is natural for these two countries to converge together because at at the moment, in the present time, and even in the foreseeable future, their national interests align, their national interests converge. And therefore, Russia is, uh, in a variety of ways, you could say, uh, cooperating with China. So I had a guest a few days ago called uh, Velina Chakarova, who calls this uh, cooperation the systemic cooperation between Russia and China, she has given it uh, the term dragon bear, right? So this is a phenomenon that we are observing. So Russia doesn't have a very large economy, but it is a very powerful military. The Chinese can help Russia in a variety of ways, and the Russians can can act as a mercenary force for the Chinese wherever required. So it's, it's a good match uh, right now, geopolitically. Long term, if you look at the long term, the next 20, 30 years, that kind of horizon, in that case, you will see them as geopolitical adversaries. But right now, there is a great deal of cooperation with, between them. So that is the reason why Russia is inclined towards China, because it, it suits them, right? It, it is what works best for them in the short to medium term, at least from the perspective of their shared interests. So uh, that's why Russia is inclined towards China. And we are already in the middle of a second Cold War. We are seeing a complete uh, bipolarization of the world. So that is, uh, and, and you can see that uh, there are lots of tensions. There is this uh, trade war going on between the US and the Chinese and all kinds of disagreements. The Chinese are saber rattling and all that. So yes, this is already a Cold War. We are already in the middle of a Cold War. Uh, Balram says, oh, Thank you for the episode with Anuj there. I'm glad you liked it. Uh, what if China and Russia rule the world instead of the US? How different would it be? Like human rights, freedom of speech, etc. You know, human rights, freedom of speech, these are nice concepts, nice ideas. Uh, we are supposed to believe that the Western form of, of, of uh, democracy is a liberal democracy where freedom of speech is guaranteed. It is absolute. But look around. Look around you and see what's happening. Can you see the assault on Joe Rogan? They are trying to cancel him. They are trying to deplatform him. Uh, various very powerful political figures like Barack Obama, etc., are arm twisting Spotify into. They're trying to force Spotify to deplatform Joe Rogan, and there there's so much censorship going on in various uh, domains and various platforms, etc. So free speech, freedom of speech, doesn't exist even in the West. And if you talk about human rights, come on, look at what what's happening. Um, all the vaccine mandates, 
uh what's happening in canada right now what's happening in australia and and the abysmal track record of nato and other countries western countries when it comes to bombarding civilians with no regard for human rights for the for the lives of civilians women children etc there's no such concept the human rights is only a nice stick to beat certain countries with when it suits them so uh so all of these uh, concepts are just illusory right uh if you look at the kind of sanctions they have imposed on various countries it's it's causing starvations and starvation and deaths uh from various uh, reasons if you look at what the west is doing indirectly in yemen it's it's uh, it's 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 terrible it's a human humanitarian crisis they have created so there is no such thing as human rights and freedom of speech and all that it's just uh, high polluting values that they talk about when it's convenient for them right uh, so if russia and china rule the world it's going to be much of the same they may not uh, put up this pretense of believing in human rights and freedom of speech and all that the western world simply pretends to believe in these things and yet they do whatever they want to do whenever it suits them so it's you know power is just power right now the power the overall power the balance of power it lies with the west with the united states in the future it may not be so but the world will not really change a lot after all power needs order it wa- it needs an orderly world and when you want order you need rules and stability so the world will go on the way it is whether it's one party that rules the world one one power or or another power and china and russia will not rule the world together if if that ever happens uh there's no place in 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 uh, for two powers in in such a system there's all there's, there can only be one power or two opposing and balanced powers so in case the us falters and and uh, and it declines as a global power then they you will see the emergence of competition and and uh, an adversary relationship emerging between russia and china themselves they will not rule together impossible it simply doesn't work that way so that's what i can say about this okay ari attacks says do you think demonetization worked for india so what was the stated aim of demonetization the stated aim of demonetization was to uh, do away with black money reduce corruption and all that so there's been a lot of commentary about this and lots of people allege that demonetization never worked etc but let me give you a different perspective uh, i think demonetization happened in 2017 or something most likely 2017 now the world is uh, not the world india has changed a lot since then and think about how india has changed today in in 2017 or whichever year demonetization happened india's informal economy was more than 50% of the of the overall economy it was something like 55 or 60% of the indian economy the informal economy which was which was uh, not taxed it was essentially all black money right all the transactions that happened by cash cannot be traced there there can be no record of those transactions and therefore those are not taxed and that's why it's all black money right in that's the informal economy in today's india in in the india of 2022 i think about 10 to 15% of the economy is informal everything else is formal because of the rise in online transactions because of the uh, decline in reliance on cash if you go 
if you are in any Indian city or town today, you can go and buy vegetables and fruits and small groceries with your phone. You don't need to carry cash anymore. Right. And the other thing which has happened is the GST, which has uh, essentially unified the entire country under one tax umbrella for the first time since 1947. So all of this is essentially a consequence of demonetization. The formalization of the economy is an enormous step in reducing corruption. Right. Today, you most of the transactions are done online, electronically. And that is one of the best ways of eliminating corruption. And I think it's going to go further in the coming years. Most likely in the next 10 years, almost everything will become formal and cash may be a thing of the past. So that itself is an enormous blow against corruption, whether we realize it or not. Right. So I think demonetization, maybe they stated something, but the actual overall effect has been that of formalizing the economy and uh, making the economy, making making it easier for small businesses to, to transact their business and all that. So I think it was a very good move. Uh, they may have, uh, the, the prime minister may have said one thing, but if you look at the bigger picture, it has, it's actually worked. I think it was a very good move because it was the first step that led to the formalization of the economy in just five years. So it's it's, it's a very rapid change, actually, if you look at it that way. Because if you want to see change in a nation, you have to look at it decade by decade. But over here, we are seeing it we are seeing it in a period of just four to five years. So that's a very rapid change that's happened. And demonetization was the first step. It was the catalyst that triggered off this big change. So I think it was a great move. It, it's really worked. Okay, this is by Dia. I've been asking the same question for months in both comments and live chat. It's difficult to get your attention. Yes, I know there are thousands of comments coming in every day. So yeah, anyway, I got I got I found the comment. So the question is, do you find do you think the universe is finely tuned and created by a supreme power which coded how everything should work? Time, laws of physics, DNA, evolution, etc., or all of this accidentally happened? If the universally accidentally came into existence, then our life is also accidental without, without any so-called spiritual intention or purpose, right? I mean, how many questions do you have, Dia? Uh, <laughs> do you think humans can get superpowers by advanced meditation? Do you think Himalayan yogis have really superpowers and all that? Is it just myths? Let me take the question about the fine-tuning. So there is this uh, theory uh, that the universe is fine-tuned for life. That our universe is fine-tuned and it is no accident. So if you look at the various constants of nature, uh, there are a bunch of constants in nature which uh, do we, whose origin we don't know. But if you change the values of these constants, like the fine structure constant, the, the strength of the gravitational force, and so on, or the strength of the electromagnetic interaction, just some some examples I'm giving. There are a lot more of those, right? The the strength of the strong interaction, weak interaction, and so on. So if you change any of these parameters, if you tweak them just a little bit, then the universe becomes impossible. The kind of life that we have on this planet becomes impossible. And therefore, um, some people claim that the universe is fine-tuned for life. I think it's a silly argument. First of all, it's not a physical argument. It's a philosophical argument. It's pure speculation. Right? So, so 
imagine that you could create a number of universes all with a different uh, kind of uh, different values of the different uh, of the various parameters then you will you would come up with different uh, strengths of interaction and, and and different ways so so the laws of nature the laws of physics would behave differently each in each universe to a small degree and i think in such a case if you had a, if you had a million different universes with slightly different a small uh, slightly uh, with with different variations of these parameters then i think that you would find life of different kinds emerging in these various universes the only example of life that we have is the one is what we see on our planet and therefore we have only one data point you cannot build an entire theory from one data point so this is just pure speculation i don't think our universe is special somehow i think if you had the different values of these parameters or different kind of tuning then different kinds of life would emerge right but life i'm sure would have emerged in some form of the, or the other so i do not buy into this argument of fine tuning Uh, now when you ask about supreme powers and all we have no evidence of the supreme powers from the perspective of spirituality philosophy etc that's a whole different perspective i am answering as a physicist i am answering from the perspective of science and physics from the perspective of science and physics we have no evidence of a supreme power so it's all about belief right and belief has no place in science science is all about observations measurements and what's observable and measurable that's all it is and therefore you know all of this uh, it's possible that uh, somebody is coding the universe there's a programmer there's a great programmer somewhere out there who has coded the universe so you're talking about this this simulation hypothesis now it's possible now what do i think is it fine is it created by supreme power or is it accidentally happened or whatever i don't know i don't know how do i answer these questions i don't have sufficient data to answer this question so this is one of the big mysteries in life uh, people some people choose to believe theory a or theory b or believe in one god or multiple gods our culture our civilizational uh, literary texts etc have a very clear i uh, have a very clear uh, understanding of how the universe came to be in in hinduism what what we call hinduism there is the concept of the multiverse for sure but from a scientific perspective we don't have evidence of that i'm not saying it it means it doesn't exist it may not be true but we don't have evidence that's all i'm saying so that's what i can say that i don't have an idea i don't have evidence for either this way or that way so i can't say i all i can say honestly is i don't know right uh, do you think humans can get uh, superpowers by advanced meditation etc superpowers those are not superpowers people talk about uh, being able to utilize 100% of the of your brain etc that's what meditation does i'm not sure if you can utilize what they call 100% of the, of the brain but you can certainly increase your focus to a significant degree by several orders of magnitude if you uh, practice meditation consistently for several years like these yogis do and that's that's what gives them certain powers that ordinary human beings would not have but these are not super powers or spiritual powers or magical powers these are physical powers right please uh, satoru gojo satoru gojo says please explain chandrashekhar the chandrashekhar limit in brief do you think nuclear energy is the best source of energy 
in brief, if I were to explain Chandrasekhar's limit, it is the maximum possible mass of a stable white dwarf. What is a white dwarf? It is essentially what what is left behind when a star like our sun eventually uh, reaches the end of its life, so to say, the, the end of its life as a as a, as a functional star. So it, it is no longer a star, it's a white white dwarf. So our sun is a it's it's a it's a medium-sized star. I think it's a yellow dwarf. I don't know what the exact categorization is. But after about 5 million years or so from today, 5 billion years, sorry, not million, billion, about around that time, the sun will become a red supergiant and, and then it will just, um, uh, its outer layers will just dissipate away. And what will be left of it, it will be the core, which will essentially be the size of maybe a city a metropolis or so, but it will have more or less the mass of an entire star inside it. So it's an extremely dense, compact uh, stellar form, which is uh, which is not a black hole, but it's very dense. It is it is held. It, it, it what prevents its collapse into a black hole is um, electron degeneracy pressure. And so, what is the maximum size that a white dwarf, white dwarf can have? It is uh, the Chandrasekhar limit, which can be calculated, um, and the calculation is available online. So it's it is currently believed to be about 1.44 solar masses. So if a star is larger than that, then it will collapse into either a neutron star or a black hole. So if a star is more massive than 1.44 solar masses, roughly, then it will collapse into either a neutron star or even further into a black hole. So that is Chandrasekhar, the, the Chandrasekhar limit. Uh, do I think nuclear energy is the best source of energy? It's one of the cleanest and best sources of energy as long as you uh, design your reactors properly and you operate them properly. So, um, so yeah, it is a very clean source of energy, especially if we are able to, in the future, hopefully... Uh, uh, design fusion reactors. So there are two kinds of nuclear reactions, fission and fusion. Fission is when a heavy nucleus such as uranium-235, 238, whichever, whichever it is, or plutonium, or even thorium, when one of these heavy nuclei breaks up, splits due to radioactivity, you can induce the, the, the fission and it, and it releases a large amount of energy. And you can uh, create a chain reaction. If it is a runaway chain reaction, it's a nuclear explosion, a nuclear bomb. If you can control the reaction with uh, cadmium rods or whatever inside the reactor, then you can harness that energy. And that's what a nuclear reactor does. So that is fission. There's, a, there's another more energetic nuclear reaction, which is nuclear fusion. So, so far, we have not been able to achieve controlled fusion. We have been able to achieve uncontrolled fusion reactions, which are essentially thermonuclear bombs. That's a fission-fusion bomb. It's a fusion reaction triggered by an initial fission explosion. So that's a fission-fusion thermonuclear uh, bomb, but that is an uncontrolled reaction. Uh, but we still haven't been able to achieve a controlled, sustained fusion reaction. That's what various countries are trying. The Europeans are trying it, the Chinese are trying it, and so on. India is doing nothing, of course. So that is nuclear fusion. 
so that is an even better form of energy in when we are when we have a fission reaction going a fission reactor nuclear reactor you have these byproducts which is called nuclear waste which is extremely not good for the environment so it has to be confined somewhere you know sealed properly and and uh, it's buried deep underground and all that you know for all posterity or something like that but in when you if you are if you are able to build a fusion reactor there will be almost no byproduct at all so it's way cleaner than a fission reaction so i think that nuclear energy is i would consider it to be green energy of and and a future fusion reactor would be even better so yeah that's what i can say about nuclear energy yeah this is what we had okay next kai the person says iran's economy has been crippled will the islamic regime fall anytime soon khamenei is very old and there are many protests across the country and they want shah pahlavi's son to come back um yes iran's economy has been crippled there is there are these sanctions that the west has imposed the us has imposed these sanctions and it's been going on for a very long time uh, ever since the uh, revolution of 1979 which was a very anti american reaction of sorts you could say uh that's there's a, there's a long history behind behind that revolution and why it was anti american but the thing is the americans have imposed sanctions on iran essentially since that time so it has crippled iran's economy to a great extent there, there have been lots of uh, problems in iran uh, so the question is will the islamic regime fall anytime soon well iran is currently now uh, entering into you could say a partnership or alliance with china the chinese are going to invest uh, tens of billions of dollars into iran obviously at a certain price so the chinese will prop up iran's economy and uh, and iran's uh, the the whatever ruling regime we have in iran right now you know the mullahs or whatever the khamenei's khamenei uh, so you have the the uh, clerics who who are the who are the overall rulers and then you have elected presidents and so on who are you could say uh, not very powerful so that's what we have now you're saying that uh, there are protests across, across the country they want sharp halavi son to come back yeah there are protests against the country uh, across the country to some extent we don't show we don't sure what's actually happening because uh, all of this information is tightly controlled and uh, any news of such protests would be they would try their best to, to suppress such news uh, going out of the country so there is clearly a, a certain degree of disaffection with the regime uh, the regime has caused a great deal of suffering because of their policies geopolitical policies and the ensuing sanctions and all that will the islamic regime fall anytime soon well that's a whole different story what what is holding this regime together it is force it is power that is holding the regime together they have uh, the uh, control of the army and whatever other militias you have the revolutionary guards the basij guards and all that so that is the, the what gives them the 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 power on the streets of the country and as long as they have that as long as they are able to control the army and the militias then they will not fall no matter how much people protest if you have guys with guns with overwhelming force then none of these protests will work 
And as long as this regime is supported by large powers such as China, it's going to continue as long as it, it provides whatever value China seeks. So I think it is it is quite hard to see the Islamic regime falling anytime soon, considering the support they are getting from China right now. Right? I would say that the only way the regime would fall if the, is if the Americans uh, launch a military invasion, which the which you know who knows they may they may <laughs> we don't know. Uh, maybe it's not really advisable to have an have a military adventure in Iran when things when we have other tensions going on in other parts of the world, in Eastern Europe, in in the Straits, in in the South China Sea, the Champa Sea, and all. So the Americans may not do that right now. I mean, do that. When I say do that, I mean uh, invade Iran or uh, do any military action in Iran. So I would say that this the regime will continue as far as I can see, at least for the short to medium duration. Okay, Vinay says, can North Korea and South Korea unite again as one single country like Germany and Vietnam? Good question. So uh, we had the situation in Vietnam in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I think it is in the, it's in the 60s, right? In the 50s and 60s, Vietnam was first under French occupation, French colonialism. They kicked the French out and then you had the division of Vietnam, the communists and the anti-communists. The Chinese got involved, the Americans got involved. We had the so-called uh, Vietnam War. The Vietnamese call it the American War. And the communists prevailed. Ho Chi Minh prevailed with the help of, with the support of the Chinese, the Soviets, etc. in various overt and covered ways. So Vietnam was first divided at this time, during this period, into North Vietnam and South Vietnam. The North Vietnamese were the communists, the South Vietnamese were the uh, the ones that the Americans supported, and the North Vietnamese won, and they reunified the country by force. Right? So Vietnam was divided because of external powers. They did not divide because of a civil war or anything. It's external powers, outside powers that divided the country. It was foreign interference in their internal affairs that divided the country. Why did Germany, why was Germany divided into East Germany and West Germany? It's again because of foreign powers, because of the United States and the USSR that divided the country. It is these foreign powers that broke the country into two pieces. And that's how it remained until the dissolution of the USSR. So it's uh, 1989 onwards at Germany. I think I think it's 1989 that the Berlin Wall fell and the country began the process of reunification. And what triggered that? The uh, the breakup of the USSR, the demise of the USSR, is what triggered that. So the Americans won the Cold War, and that's how Germany was reunified on American terms. Right. So again, there is external interference that uh, that we are seeing in this. Right. Now, when it comes to North Korea and South Korea, they, the division of the two Koreas is a consequence of this of the Korean War of the 1950 of the 1950s. That's 55, was it? Look it up somewhere around that time. And again, there is foreign interference in this. Uh, the Chinese versus the Americans, and they divided the country essentially along this. Uh, uh, ceasefire line, which is not the ceasefire has, has never been official. They are technically still at, still, still at war, but it is these two countries that divided uh, Korea into North Korea and South Korea. 
it was not the Koreans who did this. It was the interference of foreign uh, powers in the in the internal affairs of Korea that caused the division of the country. And the Chinese, who were aided by the Soviets at the time, they installed a puppet regime in North Korea, the Kim dynasty. It was Kim Il-sung, then Kim, jo- Kim Jong-il, and then Kim Jong-un. I think that's the names. Apologies if I got the pronunciation wrong in some way. So that's what it was. So again, this is foreign interference. So can the two Koreas reunite? Can they be reunified? I think it can happen. It will happen either if the Americans win the tussle against China or the Chinese win the tussle against the US or if foreign interference ceases. In that case, the country will over over time uh, reach its own equilibrium and over time the two countries will reunify as one because they're the same people, the same culture. So it, it will take time. But yeah, it is all, all of these divisions of countries, these partitions, so to say, are because of foreign powers meddling in countries. And that's what we saw in India as well. Right? So I hope that answers the question. Okay, Vishal says, Garid is the name of a mythical bird in the Mongolian culture, similar to the Indian Sanskrit word Garud. It was also the name of Chinggis Khan's pet eagle. Does that mean that Mongolia was in contact with the Indian culture, Buddhism, Hinduism, even before the great Khagan? Excellent question. So Garid, the, the Mongolian Garid is Garud, nothing else. It is the Garud, it is the Indian Garud, the Sanskrit Garud. Uh, it is believed to be the name, to have been the name of one of Chinggis Khan's pet eagles. You are right. That's what I have read. I'm not sure if that's attested in the secret history of the Mongols or not, but it's certainly what the Mongolians themselves say. So The question is, does it mean that Mongolia was in contact with Indian culture even before the time of the great Khagan, Chinggis Khan? Most certainly it was. See, Indian... Uh, trade delegations and cultural emissaries had been going eastwards since the time of Kanishka the Great, our one of our greatest emperors, right? And he lived in somewhere between the 1st and 2nd centuries AD. So, uh, Chinggis Khan lived in the 13th century and the 14th century. So, you had the the presence of these cultural and trade delegations from India in the Eastern world, in China and Eastern Asia, for more than a thousand years before Chinggis Khan was even born. And therefore, Mongolia is north of China and there would certainly have been influence of this Indian culture over there as well. You will find Buddhist ruins in Mongolia that far predate the time of Chinggis Khan. Right. So you, we do have archaeological evidence of Buddhist uh, structures, monuments, uh, sculptures, carvings in some parts of Mongolia that far predate Chinggis Khan. And therefore, it is certainly, therefore, it is clearly a fact that Mongolia was in contact with Indian culture long before the time of the great Khagan, Chinggis Khan. And Indian culture, see, the way historians portray the spread of Indian culture eastwards is that these were all Buddhist delegations, Buddhist culture that was being spread there. But that is a, a distortion, it's a fabrication. If you see the actual scholars who went eastwards, such as Kumara, Jiva, etc., they were not only 
uh, well versed in buddhist philosophy but also in the four vedas and you will find that hinduism spread all the way eastwards to japan you, you will see hindu gods and goddesses worshipped in japan even today with japanese names today is the day of saraswati puja today what is the date today the 5th of february 2022 today is saraswati puja day saraswati is worshipped in japan she is one of the major goddesses in japan they call her benzaitin so she did not come via air mail into japan the the spread of indian culture happened via china via mongolia and eastern asia into japan so it's clear that hindu practices made their way into into japan and today they are regarded as buddhist gods and goddesses and deities but these are clearly hindu gods and goddesses so yes so what i would say is that the influence of hinduism buddhism had been there in this region for more than a thousand years before chinggis khan was born and you will see the the evidence of that even today so to answer your question in brief to summarize yes mongolia was certainly in contact with indian, indian culture long before the time of the great chinggis khan and after the uh, emergence of the yuan dynasty uh, the mongolians adopted the Buddh, the the tibetan form of buddhism they uh, there was this uh, guru shishya relationship between tibet and mongolia the tibetans were the gurus the mongolians were the shishyas and they offered protection to the guru so tibet became a mongol protectorate mongolia never occupied tibet but tibet was under Mong- the mongol empire's protection so that's how events went kanhai bhat says uh, why wasn't any persian empire able to get inside the indian mainland please take this question and can you also talk about the assyrian queen semiramis so you are right uh, <clears throat> the india persia border has more or less been fixed for i would say 3000 years at least and that is the present day boundary of pakistan and persia right and and gandhar afghanistan and persia so that is the historical border between india and persia now afghanistan the the region of gandhar has over time been influenced by both um, to some extent by persia as well today the afghans uh, uh, they speak the dari language which is which is a form of of persian and uh, the uh, linguists even consider pashto to be an iranic language which i do not agree with at all but uh, that's besides the point so uh, overall you are right the persian empire none of the various kings of the hakshamanish dynasty the akkamid dynasty ever tried to invade india uh, darius the king darayavaus darayas they call him he did uh, include some western regions of present day pakistan in his empire so that that has always been kind kind of diffused the, the boundary has the boundaries over time over the centuries they move here and there to to some extent so some part of india was part of the persian empire under darius but there was never an invasion of india a proper invasion of india the way the persians in, kept on invading to the west so the persians were militarily expansionist uh, during the time of the akkamid dynasty during the time of kurush which is cyrus akshayarsha uh, which is xerxes and so on and they always wanted to expand westwards and they came into conflict with the uh, greeks 
on several occasions like in the middle of the 5th century before the during the time of the Peloponnesian war which i have spoken about in in other episodes so for some reason the persians were not inclined they did not want to invade india they certainly had the military capabilities or maybe india also had uh, powerful uh, armies and so on so maybe there is one reason or maybe they saw some kind of cultural affinity which they certainly had with india when I mean, the persians were an offshoot of the ancient indian population one of the i mean i'm, I'm the, it is the it is the vedic parshva tribe see once again i am also using the wrong term i'm using the word tribe here because we are so ingrained with this word it was the parshva clan let me correct myself it was the parshva clan of the vedic people that went westwards from india westwards from present day sindh and balochistan and settled in what is now called persia the word persia comes from the name of the clan the parshva people so um, so yes the persians were they had indian ancestry their language the old persian language was essentially an upper branch dialect of sanskrit so the same language the same culture the same ethnicity eventually the the culture changed they became uh, quasi it's uh, the, see the, they became zoroastrians zoroastrianism is not monotheism by any means it's a polytheistic uh, religion so to say so they over time they became different culturally but for some reason and we still don't know the exact reasons why the persians also never tried to invade india there was no attempted invasion of india ever by the persians no serious attempted invasion of india there may have been some small border skirmishes here here or there but there was never any enmity between any persian emperor or king and any indian emperor or king any significant of any significant kind that's interesting that's something i may need to ponder about so you have asked a very interesting question uh the reason why they were not able to get inside the indian mainland is that be- is because they never tried now why did they never try it that's a fascinating question that's something i'm, I'm going to spend some time thinking about so i i appreciate this question i really in- it's a very interesting question a deeper the deeper question is why didn't they do it why did they never try to invade india and that's something nobody has even asked or tried to answer the same way that nobody has in the past 700 years tried to answer the question of why chinggis khan never uh, why chinggis khan refused to invade india so the the question now is why did the persians refuse to ever attempt an invasion of india that is which is very interesting uh so the other question is about the assyrian queen semiramis ah see listen i am not very i don't know a lot about semiramis uh, uh she lived in the most likely in the 8th or 9th century bc uh, uh my knowledge about this lady the queen is not very deep um she was most likely one of the first women ever to become an empress or a queen uh, in uh, the assyrian uh, kingdom in assyria and it is also alleged that she uh, tried to invade india see the assyrians are not persians okay by the way the assyrians are a different ethnicity a different culture a different people uh, they were located in present day uh, what they call west asia iraq that region north west of persia so it is uh, it is believed that this queen she attempted an invasion of india and she was beaten back 
by by one of the Indian kings. I forget the name. So I think you, uh, maybe you guys, if you're interested, you can look it up. It's an interesting uh, small chapter of history. Uh, and uh, she's certainly a significant uh, historical figure in Assyria, for sure. So that's what I can say in brief about Queen Semiramis. Uh, Ramalakshmi says, there are two questions here. Firstly, why didn't the British give reparations to India, whereas they gave reparations to New Zealand after the withdrawing? And secondly, the US wants democracy to be everywhere, even when where it doesn't require to be like Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. Well, then why doesn't it try to do that with the Saudis? <laughs> okay, let's take the first question. Why didn't the British give reparations to India? See, why the question, I would like to ask a counter question. Why were the British in India is my counter question. Why did the British come to India? Why did they spend all these centuries in India? What were they doing in, in India? What was the purpose of their being here in India? And why did they leave India? So the answer is very simple. They were in India to loot, plunder, pillage and destroy India. The uh, the objective wasn't destruction. The objective was to extract all of India's wealth out of India and siphon it off to England. They wanted to enrich themselves at India's expense in a variety of ways. And that's what they achieved over the centuries. And finally, in 1947, it was no longer feasible, possible for them to stay in India because of a variety of reasons. And one of the reasons was that there was nothing more left to take out of India. India had been sucked dry over the centuries. The UK had become an enormously wealthy country just off of off the back of the wealth that they stole from India. Uh, historians have estimated that this amounts to approximately $45 trillion in today's money, approximately. So that's like more than the GDP of any country, right, today. Annual GDP, I mean. So uh, that's why the British came to India. Then why would they give money back to India when they left? The whole purpose was, was to steal money from India. And why do you give reparations? You give reparations to somebody because if you don't give reparations, then there will be consequences. Was India strong enough to impose consequences on the British? No. Even today, India is in no position to arm twist the British in giving reparations. So reparations are given only when there is a significant threat to your long-term interests. Only in that case, for instance, the Nazis had to give, uh, the, the, the Germans, sorry, the Nazis were defeated in World War II and the Germans had to give reparations to the French and to various other countries because there was a gun pointed at their heads, right? By the Americans, by the winning powers. And that's why they they were forced, they were obliged, they were obligated to give refer reparations. There was no such obligation on the British. Nobody forced them, nobody said that they'll do this or else. And that's why they did not give reparations to India. Right? Very simple. Now, uh, the US wants democracy, but why not in Saudi Arabia? You see, you know what? Democracy is just an illusion. The US uses democracy, the pretext of democracy, whenever it wants to effect a regime change in any country. 
So they used the pretext of democracy to invade and destroy Libya. And they did the same thing with Iraq. And they have done the same thing in various other parts of the world. The Saudis are very useful to the US. The Saudis have been supplying oil to the US for all these decades. And even today, the Saudis are an important geopolitical factor in the Middle East, in West Asia. They are very useful to the US. They serve a very a variety of useful purposes. And that's why the Americans will not will will keep their hands off Saudi Arabia. And of course, as you can see today, the Saudis are also implementing a variety of liberal reforms, etc. Just to stay on the on the good side of the Western world, especially the US. So, so that's how it goes. So democracy, the US doesn't want democracy. They when they use the, the pretext of democracy whenever they, they want to uh, effect regime change somewhere. That's all it is. Next question is by Ayan Chakrabarti. How are the stones of the Rama Setu bridge floating? Are they really floating? Or is there or is there something more to its structure? And aren't there any other evidences of the Ramayana other than the Ram Setu? What about the Sigiriya rock fortress? Let's talk about the Ram Setu. There are like 15 questions in here. <laughs> Let me take the major question. How are the stones of the Rama Setu bridge floating? Well, I have never seen a floating stone. I haven't visited the place, but I have seen plenty of photographs uh, of the structure. You can look up photographs online on, on Google Images, Bing Images, whatever your favorite search engine is. And you will not see a single floating stone there. Now, I have seen some images on social media where people claim that the, the, there is a bucket of water and there is a stone from this place which is floating. Well, what's the evidence that came from there? If you look at the structure, the large scale, the large scale structure between uh, southern India and and uh, northern Sri Lanka, you will see that the structure is mostly submerged. There's nothing floating there. So I don't know on what basis people make the claim that stones are floating. And I think the, it's written in some text. Which one is it? Is it the Ram Charit Manas or something, in which they say that the there was magic and the stones were floating? No. You know what? Over the over the centuries, over thousands of years, stories get embellished with all kinds of additional facts, ad additional uh, additional claims. So you have to look beyond all the embellishments and, and try to dig out the actual factual data. And what actually happened is that the entire bridge was constructed. Uh, I'm not sure how it was done and how long it took, but it was an actual land bridge that was constructed between India and Lanka. There was no floating stones there. It was a superhuman effort and it was actually done. So there is no evidence of a single floating stone. Look at the images, go there, look at the photographs, look at the satellite images, look at the drone images, look at the aircraft images, look at actual images taken from the beaches and from the actual structure. You will not see a single floating stone there. I personally haven't seen any any evidence of that. So that's what I can say. So is there any other evidence of the Ramayana other than the Ram Setu? Well, I'm not sure about that, but this one is there, right? So we need to examine this one. And I hope that the, the ASI and the government of India will take some interest and do some actual archaeological work there and see if you find additional evidence of human activity in this uh, structure. What about the Sigiriya rock fortress? It's 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 a rock fortress in Sri Lanka. I am not quite sure if it is connected to the, to the Ramayana or not, but the presence of this structure, the bridge between India and Sri Lanka is 
well it's, it's it's the what else do you need to to prove that this these events actually happened uh saurabh says there's an entire section in the mahabharat about raj dharma governance did do you think that we indians were the first to develop the entire system of governance on, on a large scale see we know for a fact that india is the oldest civilization in the world that's not that is beyond any dispute but we also know that india was the first large scale urban civilization in the world large scale urban civilization so if you look at uh, the saptasindhu region the so called indus valley or harappan phase of india civilization which is the saraswati sindhu phase of our history we find that we had a large scale widespread urban civilization urban civilization properly well planned cities with with brilliant amenities excellent drainage systems excellent engineering hydro engineering multi storied buildings excellent ports harbors and all that and this is at least 5000 years before today there is no other civilization civilization like that in the entire world right and the geographical extent of this civilization was larger than egypt and mesopotamia and all these other civilizations put together even if you add all of these civilizations together the land area it is still dwarfed by the land area of the indian civilization the saraswati sindhu civilization and it is clear that you cannot have such a vast urban highly technologically advanced well organized stable civilization without an extraordinarily good system of governance so there you have evidence of the fact that we had excellent governance over 5000 years ago now i don't know when the mahabharat happened there are all kinds of claims uh, none of these claims is proven beyond any doubt but most likely the mahabharat could have possibly perhaps been to some extent in some way contemporaneous possibly perhaps with the saraswati sindhu phase of india civilization because in the mahabharat you have uh, accounts of cities in the ramayan we don't have large scale cities there is no mention of large metropolitan cities so it is possible that the events of the mahabharat happened closer to the time time scale of the saraswati sindhu phase of india civilization and, and at that time we have undisputable evidence of excellent governance so i would say that yes from all all of this evidence put together it is clear that we indians were the first to develop an excellent system of large scale governance governance on on a, on a large scale so yes i agree with the statement that you have made uh kostob says what were the conditions that gave rise to monotheism or anti polytheism in the ancient medieval period see if you look at the various cultures all across the world uh you see that all of these cultures all of these ancient cultures were polytheistic if you look at the ancient indian vedic culture it was polytheistic if you look at the broader um if you look at the persian culture Zoroastrianism it was polytheistic 
do not believe the fake claims, spurious claims that Zoroastrianism is a monotheistic religion. Ahura Mazda is the supreme deity, but there are lots of other, other deities also in Zoroastrianism. So Zoroastrianism, which was an offshoot of Hinduism, was polytheistic. In Buddhism, which is again part of Hinduism, you have all kinds of bodhisattvas and other divinities. So the Dharmic culture was polytheistic. The large-scale Indo-European culture, which came into existence as a consequence of westward migrations of ancient Indians, this was also without any dispute, without any doubt, a polytheistic culture all across Eurasia. If you look at the Hunnic culture, which gave rise to the Turkic culture and the Mongolian culture, the Hunnic culture was polytheistic. They were they were worshippers of the Tengriist pantheon of gods, the sky father Tengri, the mother goddess Umai, and various other gods and goddesses. Ancient Japan was polytheistic. The Polynesian cultures are polytheistic. Uh, if you look at the Native American cultures, they were also all polytheistic. Whether it's North America, whether it's South America. If you look at African cultures, again polytheistic. So the world was polytheistic overall. Now, about two, two and a half, three thousand years, I'm not sure when, uh, somewhere in this time frame, a monotheistic uh, belief system emerged out of the sands of West Asia, out of the sands of Arabia. So, you know, when you have polytheistic cultures essentially emerge out of lush green climates, Africa is lush green mostly. Uh, India was lush green, lots of river valleys, so polytheistic culture. Eurasia, Europe is also reasonably uh, well vegetated and so on. So again, polytheism thrived there. But in the harsh, unforgiving climate of the Arabian deserts, somehow a monotheistic culture came out of that, which is the it, it it all began with the ancient Judaic culture, which is a monotheistic culture. It gave rise to Christianity and later on to the Islamic faith as well. So these are the three religions of the book, they say, the three peoples of the book. So it's essentially different manifestations of the same, same core culture, which is monotheism. So the conditions that gave rise to monotheism were the conditions that you find in a desert region harsh, unforgiving climate and the need for extreme discipline in order to survive. That gave rise to this sort of culture. So, so that's how it happened. And then it spread everywhere and you know how it spread. So we don't need to go into that. Okay. Uh, Dominic says, should ISRO's main focus be reusable rockets? Is it doing enough to develop it as soon as possible? ISRO hasn't even started developing reusable rockets. It's it's very disappointing. So if you look at um, SpaceX, uh, they developed uh, reusable rockets and they developed a host of technologies, uh, advanced technologies, innovative technologies, which have made them uh, the most profitable private space company in the world. They are more profitable than I think even Lockheed Martin and, and other countries. Oh, sorry, other, other companies and uh, their cost per launch 
uh, if you if you look at the amount of money it takes to launch one kilo of payload into space, their cost per kilo is the lowest. It is lower than ISRO, lower than everybody else, because they have developed reusable rockets. Now, this technology is something even we can develop in India, but we're not doing it. Now, if you look at the number of rocket launches, various uh, space organizations are doing. Over the, since twenty since twenty twenty, the Chinese have launched more than seventy or eighty rockets. Since twenty twenty, SpaceX alone has ro- launched more than sixty rockets. Since twenty twenty, ISRO has launched four rockets. Four. It's 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 incredible that there is no focus on on taking ISRO forward, and I don't blame the scientists. The scientists don't get to decide the budget. The scientists don't have any power, any decision-making power. They are just doing what they are told to do. They are just following orders. And and India's most powerful rocket, the GSLV, is actually a mid-sized or small-sized rocket. The kind of payload it can take to low-Earth orbit isn't isn't very massive. It's about, I don't know how much, 2 tons, 5 tons? I'm not sure. Look it up. It, it, it is dwarfed by the capabilities of SpaceX and the various Chinese long march rockets or even the Russian rockets. So ISRO is still a puny little space organization. Yeah, it is. It is. It has a reasonable track record with the PSLV, which is an even smaller rocket. And the GSLV is still under development. It is still not very reliable because the last launch failed, unfortunately. So what? It's not this fault of the scientists. ISRO is not doing well. If you want to develop a rocket and make it a reliable rocket, you have to undertake lots and lots of launches and iron out all the little problems that obviously will be there in any technology or in any uh, machine. So the only way to do that is to have lots and lots of launches. But unfortunately, it looks like there is no ambition on the on the part of the leadership, whoever is issuing orders to ISRO. And so we are seeing nothing happening. There is no new rocket being developed. Uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, disappointing. There's no new, more powerful rocket being developed. There is no focus on uh, developing the self-landing reusable boosters technology, reusable rockets technology, nothing of that. There's no in- innovation happening at all. The only few launches that happen, happen sporadically. And I hear that there's going to be this human space flight program. It's already delayed. I don't know when the tests will happen. So I don't know, man. It's really languishing in, in the doldrums right now, Israel. And uh, some people would blame it on COVID. Well, COVID did not prevent the Chinese for, from continuing to launch rockets or the Americans from doing so. But somehow it, it completely stopped whatever Israel was doing. So that's very disappointing. That's all I can say about this. Um, do planets need to maintain a certain range of mass, weight to stay in their orbit around the sun? On Earth, we are burning through fossil fuels and future space exploration will guarantee that we begin mining for resources from from other planets, possibly meteors, you mean asteroids. This would have an impact on the weight of the planet. If yes, what would be the effect of shifting out of orbit even slightly in terms of gravity, temperature, etc., etc., etc.? Sustainability of life on Earth. Okay, the main question is, do planets need to maintain a certain mass to stay in orbit around the sun? No, absolutely not. You have even small pieces of, of 
rock that are in orbit around the sun so if you study how the force of gravitation work and over here we are talking about the force the newtonian way of looking at gravitation is the inverse square law even a small rock like this will be in orbit around the sun so uh, so th- to answer in brief planets don't need to maintain any range of mass or weight or anything to stay in orbit around the sun orbits are guaranteed as long as certain conditions are are, are met an orbit is essentially you're falling but you're falling in a certain direction that makes you miss your target all the time so that's an orbit uh, so yeah so you don't need to maintain any mass to stay in orbit of course if the amount of mass of a planet changes the orbit will shift accordingly so if you're talking about the, a certain specific orbit yeah it it all uh, it all depends on a, on a variety of factors including the velocity the mass and all that um but you know what what you're asking is that if we mine resources from our planets will it change the mass of the planet no it won't there will be no significant change in the mass of our planet because of mining or because of uh, space travel so i don't see any such thing happening um so to answer your question in brief the the orbit of the planet will not change the mass of the planet will not change to any significant extent because of mining or space exploration and therefore we will remain in whatever orbit we are in most likely until the end of the end of the solar system in its current state prakar sharma says can you please talk about strange matter and the strange quark how is it formed in a neutron star in a quark star can it start a chain reaction of stable strange matter throughout the universe how different is a is a quark star from a black hole what if a strange matter quark star is actually a black hole okay what is the strange quark so there are six quarks in nature what are quarks the, the quarks are the fundamental building blocks of the of the particles that we observe the protons neutrons the protons and neutrons essentially right so the, so the quarks uh, and whatever other matter we can observe right so there are six quarks up down top bottom strange charm up down strange charm top bottom six generations uh, so six six quarks are in existence now the protons and neutrons are made up of, of combinations of the up quark and the down quark uh, the other quarks are heavier so um so whatever uh, elementary particles we observe they are made up of essentially the top uh, the up quark and the down quark only various combinations and permutations of these two quarks strange quarks are hypothesized to form inside neutron stars so inside neutron star you have incredible amounts of pressures a neutron star is essentially a few kilometers in diameter but it cont- contains the entire mass of an entire star it's essentially an enormous atomic nucleus so it is possible that within a neutron star because of the enormous pressures that you f- that you have so what happens is that quarks uh, have this confinement property if you try to take two quarks or three quarks apart then the amount of energy that you have to put into doing that it leads to the creation of new quarks and you can never have a single naked quark but inside a neutron star where there is such incredible pressure this pressure causes the quarks to deconfine that's what believed 
and then you have this quark matter floating around so deconfined quarks just a, a sea of quarks free quarks inside the neutron star and that's called quark matter and it is possible that because of the pressure and the forces that are present inside this quark matter inside a neutron star you may see the formation of strange quarks which are in in, in strange matter which is the stablest matter in the universe so this is all confined inside a neutron star but what you have is that so you have neutron star collisions very rare events in which two neutron stars collide with each other and when such a collision happens bits and pieces of the neutron star are ejected thrown out and in such a case you may have some of this quark matter being thrown out into the universe and these are called uh, what are they called strangelets small pieces of quark matter and it is possible that if this sort of uh, material quark matter strangelets they uh, they come in contact with a regular star they may convert the entire star into quark matter if they come into contact with a planet the entire planet will be converted into something made of quark matter so it is certainly possible but it's never been observed so this is all theoretical theoretically it can certainly happen but <laughs> it's never been observed so a quark star is essentially a quark is essentially a neutron star whose interior is made of quark matter only the exterior external shell may be may be may, may be composed of ordinary matter so that's what a quark star is it is not a black hole a black hole is way more compact and a black hole it's essentially something whose matter density is so high that even light cannot escape from it it has an event horizon so that's a black hole so a strange matter quark star cannot be a black hole okay shantanu says what if we had economic liberalization a couple of decades earlier instead of 1991 would it be any different from today than today yes certainly india would have been a very different place if economic liberalization had been done in 1947 itself so from 1947 onwards we had the uh, nehruvian socialism that was imposed upon india and what it did was it it created this phenomenon called the nehruvian rate of growth so india's economy grew at about 1 or 2% per year despite india being a desperately poor country when you have a desperately poor country and you have the right economic policies you should see 10 to 25% growth year upon year at least for a few years but what mr nehru did was he stifled the growth in the country he imposed the 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 nehruvian socialism on india and india's growth stagnated he he perpetuated poverty and mediocrity in the country and eventually by 1991 or 92 i think it was 91 was it by that time india had become essentially bankrupt and that's why the government had to turn to the world bank or the imf i don't know which one it was we had to turn to these western monetary institutions for help and in return for that we had to open up the economy so this was done under the prime ministership of mr pv narsimha rao and then the entire country was transformed very quickly so before 91 india was a closed economy india was kind of like north korea in some ways everything was closed off 
uh, we had one tv channel in india in which you could never get any news of what's happening outside the country so india was closed off and the economy was totally dead there was no progress happening uh, industries were all state regulated private industries were essentially not allowed to run unless well all that so if this liberalization had been done in 1947 india would have been a first world country today i mean see where japan was in 1947 japan was a destroyed country it had been flattened by the events of world war 2 and the twin nuclear bombings by the americans japan was destroyed and they rebuilt their economy from there and by the 1960s 1970s japan had again become a first world country look at where china was in the 1945 1947 it was also a destroyed country and see where it is today right so if india had done the same things in 1947 in 1950 india would have been a first world country a first world economy today so imagine how much time we lost thanks to the policies of the great shri jawaharlal nehru and the subsequent congress regimes so india would have been very different today had those reforms been undertaken in 1947 ramalakshmi says with all due respect sir i know the pure passion of freedom that was there in subhash chandra bose but if we consider a hypothetical situation where he becomes the leader of india wasn't he a leftist and how do you think his ideology would benefit india in terms of kick starting to become a big power so the option that we have let's say we have two options mr nehru and mr gandhi that's option a and mr obose which is option b now we have already seen what happened under mr nehru with the gandhian philosophy see what happened to india i just spoke about it india's economy grew at 1% or 2% now let's say we have you say that mr bose was a leftist i disagree with that I completely disagree with that. There is no evidence he was a leftist. But let's say hypothetically he was a leftist, and let's say he would have imposed uh, what you would what you would expect leftist or Marxist countries to do. That sort of economic uh, policy. So let's look at what the Vietnamese have done. Have you seen the change in Vietnam's economy after the Vietnam War? Vietnam is close to becoming a middle-income country today. it's a communist country technically look at the chinese they they are also technically a communist country look at where they are today right so if you look at these le- so called leftist countries and leftist policies they are resulting in significant growth of the economy and law and order and all that so if if mr bose was an authoritarian person and if he had uh, leftist views let's say let's uh, let's agree let's hypothetically agree to that would india's economy had have grown at 1% or 2% the way it 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 grew under mr nehru definitely not mr bose was certainly in favor of of industrialization mr nehru prevented india's industrialization so i think that whatever mr bose was like his economic policies would have led to a significant and rapid growth in india's economy and and uh, so i i don't understand uh, why i mean i mean i respect your point of view you must have been listening to various perspectives and and trying to learn history perfectly absolutely nothing wrong with that 
I personally disagree with the perspective that Mr. Bose was a leftist. He may have had some left-leaning uh, so certain perspectives that today would be considered to be left-leaning. But the thing is this, in any country that is that has been newly liberated from foreign occupation, you need a period of time where the economy is tightly controlled and it, it is taken in a certain direction. Uh, it is shepherded in a certain direction. Look at how South Korea was. South Korea became, uh, South Korea after the Korean War was again a totally destroyed country. And then it was under a dictatorial regime for about 20 years. And see the transformation which happened. So Mr. Bose wanted that sort of thing for India. He wanted essentially dictatorship, one party rule for about a period of about 20 years. I, You know what? It may not have been a very bad thing for India. We in today's world, we we talk about democracy. Democracy is the best thing. Dictatorship is bad. You know, look at look at Singapore. They had Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, who was nothing but a dictator. It was a one-party system, and he was the supreme authority. Nobody dared go against him. It was a dictatorship. But look at the way he transformed Singapore. He was a benevolent dictator. Right? So here we have an example of a guy who had this iron-fisted rule over Singapore, but he took Singapore in the right direction. Look at where Singapore is today. Right. And Singapore was again a destroyed country when it became free. It was a third world, it was a pure third world country. Very poor. It was in, in, the, in, the, in the depths of destitution. That's what Singapore was. And within 20 years, this man transformed the fortunes of the country through dictatorship. If there had been democracy in Singapore, Singapore would still be a third world country. And today you are seeing the gradual transformation of Singapore towards a democratic, uh, towards a, a certain form of democracy. So I see, I don't see anything wrong with Mr. Subhash Bose's uh, ideas for how India should have gone, in what direction India should have gone. I think we have already seen the alternative to Mr. Bose, which is Mr. Mr. Nehru and his policies, which totally uh, stifled India's go growth. So I think Mr. Bose's plans for India, had he won, had he succeeded, would have actually kick-started India's economy the way it should actually have. Right? Okay, Sindhu Shetty says, is Buddhism one of the reasons for the fall of the Mauryan Empire? So what you see in the Mauryan Empire is that you had uh, the first great emperor, Chandragupta Maurya, the founder of the Mauryan dynasty, who under the uh, mentorship and guidance of the great strategist and realist Vishnugupta Chanakya became the emperor of India. In about a period of 20 or so years, he, 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 he consolidated his power, his rule over essentially the entire Indian subcontinent. And he uh, reclaimed the land of Gandhar from the Greeks and that's one of the largest uh, empires India has ever seen. So that is the genesis, the beginning of the Mauryan Empire. Then you had his son Bindusar. Then you had Ashok. So Ashok also, he may have been a tyrannical king, etc. But he was a very powerful king. And it is under Ashok that we see the, gradual, the, the transition to Buddhism. So Ashok, after the... Um, 
it's not after the kalinga war it is actually before the kalinga war that he became uh, a practicing buddhist he he began to practice the tenets and practices of buddhism what we what we call buddhism today but it is under ashok that uh, buddhism went from being a fringe uh, from from being a fringe cult into a mainstream uh, culture so it is because of state support that this happened under ashok and then what we see is that after the death of ashok the subsequent kings of the mauryan dynasty were not good enough they were not powerful enough and they were essentially all insignificant and the power of the of the mauryan empire slowly declined and within about 250 or 300 years we find that the last mauryan king is assassinated by his own senapati by his own commander in chief and the reason for that was that india was crumbling the empire was crumbling under the the leadership of the mauryan emperors so pushyamitra shunga assassinated the last mauryan emperor and took over the reins of the country and he again consolidated the country and uh, made it powerful again which is the which is the shunga empire the shunga dynasty so we see the beginning of the decline of the mauryan empire with the death of emperor ashok and it is during the time of ashok that buddhism also becomes uh, essentially the 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 dominant uh, philosophy or or culture in india the buddhist way of uh, way of thought so you could say that this cannot be a coincidence there is clearly um, the two things do coincide so <clears throat> you could say it's one of the causative factors this this entire emphasis on pacifism could have caused the decline of the mauryan empire but we also see other empires that have been described as buddhist empires that have done very well for instance today's historians they describe the kushan empire as a buddhist empire they describe kanishka the great as a buddhist king which is buddhist emperor which is not actually true but even if you agree with the historians you will say that he was a militarily expansionist emperor he conquered most of south uh, most of central asia from the caspian sea to the aral sea he also conquered present day xinjiang of uh, present day china so he created an enormous empire and if he was a buddhist then buddhism certainly did not cause him to be pacifistic right but i would disagree that kanishka was a buddhist he was an indian and he if you see about if you see about 5% of his coins have uh, depictions of the buddha or the other coins of depictions of other gods and goddesses uh, but when coming back to the mauryan emperor there is the mauryan empire there is clearly a coincidence the two things do coincide the uh, introduction of buddhism as the official de facto state culture religion whatever you want to call it and the decline of the mauryan empire so it could certainly have been a causative factor in the fall or the decline of the mauryan empire anmol says our ncert textbooks never mention the bravery of our rajput warriors the books books mention akbar as great but not maharana pratap why are they hiding the reality of our history uh, right <clears throat> so it's not only the rajputs that are marginalized and whitewashed out of history in ncert textbooks i think even the marathas are are kind of uh, glossed over maybe a paragraph or two the marathas defeated the turks and uh, 
freed India from the foreign occupation and established an, a vast empire that went all the way north to, Af- to southern Afghanistan. So the Marathas are, were a very, very powerful and very consequential empire, and, and yet they are not they are kind of uh, whitewashed in the NCR textbooks. You find almost no mention of the Gupta Empire. Come on, Gupta Empire was massive. It was enormous. And it was a period of, of a great cultural efflorescence in India. And you had great emperors like Kumara Gupta, like Chandragupta I and uh, Samudra Gupta, the hero of a thousand battles. And also Skanda Gupta, the, the great defender of India. Then you have people like Lalita Ditya Muktapida, who again conquered Central Asia, right? Who is not mentioned at all. And NCRT, I don't know how much they mentioned the Cholas. I mean, just one Chola empire, just one Chola emperor, Rajendra Chola, in one lifetime conquered the entirety of Southeast Asia all the way to the Philippines, right? So none of these great warriors, great kings, emperors are mentioned. Are, are, you will not see NCRT doing justice to any of them. And the same goes for the brave Rajput warriors. Rajputs are today, you will see, demonized. They are kind of ridiculed in, in contemporaneous dialogue because of the perspectives and, and the kind of image that the Indian textbooks have created of the Rajputs, which is completely distorted. The Rajputs were incredibly brave warriors. Nobody has spilled more blood than the Rajputs in defending India from the Turks. and that's not how they are portrayed. So that is that is just terrible. It's tragic and it needs to change. That's why I keep saying we need to reform the education system and we need to rewrite our history textbooks. We need to decontaminate the history textbooks and make them purely 100% factual and nothing else. Okay, let's take one more question. Prakash says, say something about success and failure and why sometimes giving 100% doesn't yield results. The results don't depend solely on the amount of effort you put into a certain endeavor. They also depend on the strategies you you pick, on the strategy you choose. Right. So if you choose the wrong strategy, then no matter how hard you work, you're not going to get the results that you desire. Let's let's take the game of football. If you choose the wrong strategies against the wrong team, you're going to lose no matter how hard you work. Right? If you if you go to let's say if you let's say let's take the example of cricket. You know that uh, if you go to South Africa or Australia the pitches are very hard and bouncy and good for pace bowling, fast bowling. But if you go there and use, you use you pick five spinners in your team, you're going to get thrashed, even if the spinners work really, really hard. So if you choose the wrong tactics, the wrong strategies, the wrong policies, you're going to fail no matter how hard you work. The other thing is that there is an inherent, see, in any sport, in any business, or in anything else in life, there is an inherent delay between cause and effect. Whether it is tennis, whether it's football, whether it's cricket, whether it is a certain business, it's a certain industry. When you do something new, you will not see results immediately. Sometimes it will take a week to see the results. 
sometimes it will take a month sometimes it will take 3 years to see results it all depends and every sport every business has a certain characteristic inherent delay between cause and effect and in sports the best players the, the greatest champions they understand this delay very well so that's another aspect that you have to take into consideration that in anything you try you cannot expect to see results immediately you try something and you do it for 3 days and you get then you give up because you get disheartened nothing happened that's not how it, that's not how it works you have to study the industry you're in or 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 the business you're in and you do, or, or whatever else you are trying to achieve you have to understand that properly and you have to understand that you will not see results immediately so you have to understand how long it will it typically takes before you see results and things like that so that is what leads to success if you can master all of these things properly let me take one final question one more wisdom bro says why does india have very few cave paintings of the ice age because we have not looked see first of all india doesn't have a lot of caves a uh, caves typically you will find where you have uh, mountains and hills and uh, so you have some cave paintings like the bimbekta cave paintings and things like that but i am not sure if uh, our archaeologists have discovered all the caves that exist or not for there are many uh, places where you have caves and those have not been explored so that could be one of the reasons and the other thing is that india's cl- climate was always reasonably warm and the ice age if you go down south towards peninsular india then you may not have had that much of an effect of the ice age possibly and therefore people may not have had to live in caves that's also a possibility so there are a n- number of factors but most likely there must be more cave paintings that are still waiting to be discovered and our archaeologists have done nothing because they are busy looking at mughal monuments and restoring them so that could be one of the reasons so it needs to be seen if we can find some more i'm sure there are many more all right my friends that brings us to the end of today's session thank you very much for all the very interesting questions and uh, tomorrow we will have a video chat session so those of you who want to have face to face who want to ask the uh, whatever questions you have face to face i'll see you tomorrow be prepared with your best questions one question per person So I will see you all tomorrow thank you so much for the questions take care and I will see you tomorrow bye